All right, Luke, Luke 19. Thank you for reading that, Josh. Quite a text to base a yearly holiday off for about 2,000 years now, isn't it? Lots going on in this text. It's heavy. Some rejoicing. There is some rejection. There is some destruction. There is some weeping. So why do we celebrate Palm Sunday again? Remind me. Because this is the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. And it was on this day that a very significant moment came into human history. This is the day, Palm Sunday, this is the day 2,000 years ago where he once and for all let us know who he truly is. And he is the king. Here's the message of Palm Sunday. We need a king. And we have a king. That's the message of Palm Sunday. We need a king. Good news. We have a king. We need a king, don't we? You can tell. We need a king. Now, some of you, you just went to the political realm there a little bit. You're like, yeah, we need a king because we're no good at governing each other. And to be honest, I would agree with you. The other day, I got a piece of mail, and it was from some government agency in Georgia. And it said, you owe us 20 bucks because you used some sort of toll road and you didn't have a pass. And this was two years ago, maybe three. And I'm like, first of all, when was I in Georgia two years ago using some elite toll road that you need a pass for, some bougie toll road with no pass? And second of all, if it takes you two and a half, three years to track down 20 bucks, your government probably has some bigger fish to fry than who's using their toll road, okay? Like 20 bucks, it probably costs you 20 bucks to process this, but okay, right? And I would agree, like there's even, you know, there's other examples, there's more serious examples. Yeah, I would agree. No, the human kings typically don't work out. We see that in the scriptures over and over again. But actually, believe it or not, that is not the primary, that is not the ultimate reason we need a king. We need a king, not just because we're not good at governing each other, but we need a king because we are not good at governing ourselves. Some of you have seen these these warning labels on packages that are just downright hilarious because they should be so obvious. Right? You got a bag of peanuts at the store. What's it say on the side? Caution, contains nuts. You don't say. Right? You've seen this, haven't you, right? Like I, I was literally, this literally yesterday was at Walmart. I'm with Alden buying some Pokemon cards and for me. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, true story, we're in line, we're waiting, there's, you know, they got the stuff in the line to, you know, impulse buy before you check out, and there was lighters, literally on the side of the lighter, it said, caution, flammable. I said, who needed this? Who was the first guy who was like, you didn't tell me it lights on fire? Like, who was that guy? True story, I saw this the other day, true story, on a pizza box, a pizza box, on the outside of the pizza box, it says, caution, it says, open box before eating. Open box before eating. And when I saw that, I'm like, hey, we're not going to make it. 
Just like as mankind, the human race, it's just, it's, we're, 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 we're not going to make it, right? We're not good at governing ourselves, not just because we apparently have people out there eating boxes, <laughs> but because the company probably had to warn the rest of us because some judge somewhere gave him $10 million for emotional damage, right? I choked on a pizza box. It hurt my feelings. Oh, well, now we all got to be warned. You see, the truth is, is that we need a king because... We're not good at governing ourselves. And it's not just because we lead ourselves into stupid things. It's because we lead ourselves into sinful things. There are bad decisions we make, but there are also some dark decisions that we make. We are not fit to even be our own king. If it was just me and I was the only citizen and the king of me, I would find a way to mess that up. And so would you. We need somebody greater than ourselves. We need a divine king. We need a supernatural king, a heavenly king. We need a king that is not limited, who can do anything, who can solve any problem, who has complete sovereignty and power and control. And we need a king that is good with that power, sovereignty, and control, that will use all that power for us and not against us. One who will rescue us from ourselves, from our own sin, from our, 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 our own inabilities, from our own uh, self-inflicted wounds that will, will, will give us what we don't deserve. We need that kind of a king. That's the king we're looking for deep down. You might be looking for him in the bottom of a bottle. You might be looking for him in the mirror. You might be looking for him in your wallet, but that's who you're looking for, a divine king, a good king and the God king. And the message of Palm Sunday is that we have such a king. Good news, we have a king. His name is Jesus Christ. And on this day, roughly 2,000 years ago, he demonstrated that to us beyond a shadow of a doubt. We just read about it, thanks to uh, Pastor Josh, but we're going to go back through, look at a few pieces of that text. We'll start with a handful of verses, Luke 19. We'll start in verse 28, go through about 35. I want to show you a couple things. Luke 19, 28, the Bible says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go to the village in front of you, where entering you'll find a colt, or like a young donkey, tied on, which no one has ever sat on. Right? Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You will say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And he said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt, the young donkey. They sat Jesus on it. So let me kind of give you the scene for this, the backdrop, because you need it. This was during the beginning, the, the week of Passover in Jerusalem. And for those of you who don't understand what that means, that means that the city was completely packed out, especially around the temple area. Over two million people would have traveled into the city to celebrate this monument, 
uh, to this event. So there's traffic, right? No parking, standing room only. For some context in a culture like ours, think of New York City, like Times Square on New Year's Eve. Okay, that type of a, uh, of a feeling. Think of uh, Super Bowl and the stadium that's just packed out. The mall uh, on Black Friday. Chinese buffet after the Baptist church lets out. Whatever, you, you, you take your pick. You get the idea, right? You could feel the excitement in the air. Everyone, everyone was in Jerusalem. Everyone was there shopping, eating, running around, and getting ready for the Passover, And these people, they are restless. They're as restless as can be because they were so sick and tired of being oppressed by Rome. They are paying more taxes than a Californian. They have laws on their laws and regulations on their regulations. They are absolutely to to their wit's end because they want to be a sovereign nation, sovereign state, where they rule themselves, they are thinking what's on their mind is that they desperately need a king. And it's in this context that Jesus comes, that Jesus proves that he claims that he acts as the king. He comes to show us, I am your king. We have a king. One way he does this is by fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Right now, I don't want to get our Holiday is confused here, but you know the Christmas Carol or a Christmas Carol? It's like a movie, a play, you know? And Ebenezer Scrooge has to visit the ghost of Christmas past. Well, it's kind of like that on Palm Sunday that there's a Holy Ghost who shows us Palm Sunday past. In fact, hundreds of years before Jesus came into town and proved himself to be king on this day, the Holy Spirit told us in the past what to look for, what that would be like, gave us prophecies that Jesus actually comes to fulfill, many of which he fulfills on this day, his triumphal entry. In fact, this text is dense. I can't even hit it all. It's dense with Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled upwards of 300 total in his life. Old Testament prophecies, right? So for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, big idea is the Bible comes into two testaments, Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament tells us Jesus was coming. The New Testament tells us Jesus came. And the Old Testament was written hundreds of years before the New Testament and hundreds of years before God Almighty, through the pen of his holy men, said, here's exactly what's going to happen. And unlike most other people in their predictions, God was totally correct, This is what happened, and that's how we know Jesus is who he says he is. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Now, for those of you who know that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, you've already been clear on that for a while. I want you to get reawakened on how amazing that is. Fulfilling over 300 prophecies is way greater than a one in a million chance. I mean, this is like one in a billion. This is like, it's a miracle. I mean, think about how much different Jesus is than us. You don't walk around all day fulfilling prophecies. I mean, you're cool. We like it. We love you. But you don't, you don't just, you know, you, 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 you weren't born in Bethlehem, son of a carpenter, coming through the line of David and Abraham and all these. You don't fulfill all these prophecies. Neither does anybody else. Only one person did, and that's Jesus. And here throughout the Palm Sunday story, he does it again and again. In fact, the story starts with it. Look at verse 28 and 29 again. It looks like such detail, doesn't it? 
It says, when he said these things, he went ahead to go to Jerusalem. Verse 29, he came near these two cities, Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet. And then he sent two of the disciples. So he's coming into Jerusalem as king from Bethphage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives. And this is actually a huge tip-off that this is the guy we need, that this is the divine king, that this is the Messiah, because he's coming into Jerusalem from the east. Jesus has been on this long journey outside of Jerusalem, town to town to town, and he's finally coming back in after ministering all over the place to all sorts of people in all of their villages. He's coming back in from the east. And the reason this is important is because this is what Ezekiel said would happen hundreds of years before this day in Ezekiel 43. In Ezekiel, in the beginning of the book, God tells Ezekiel that because the temple system and all this is so corrupt, that, that the glory of the Lord has departed from the temple and has gone east. It's kind of cryptic, kind of weird, right? You're reading that in your daily devotions, and you're like, what do I do with this? Well, by the end of Ezekiel, in chapter 43, God comes back to Ezekiel, and he says, one day, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the kingship of God, the goodness of God will come back into the temple from whence it came, from the east. In fact, it says this in Ezekiel 43, verse 2, Behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. Jesus and his majesty, he's the glory of God of Israel. He comes into Jerusalem from the east. Now, it gets even crazier when Jesus came into the city from the east after his triumphal entry. Where does he go? He goes to the temple and he drives out the money changers and flips their tables. Right? You don't see that very often in the kids' Bible, do you? <laughs> Jesus fashioned a whip within like 10 minutes, which means I think he's fashioned a whip before. Well, that's a side of Jesus we don't get to see all the time. But he did, he, he flipped the tables and he cleansed the temple and Ezekiel said that would happen, right? In Ezekiel 43, it goes on to say, as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple and he said to me, the house of Israel shall no more defile my name. Jesus came into the temple from the east and declared that they would no longer defile that temple, thus fulfilling the vision of Ezekiel and proving through biblical prophecy and the fulfillment of it, this is our king. And that's only the first couple of verses. I mean, he's just getting started. Did you notice that thing about the donkey? Yeah. Let's go back through. Look at verse 29. We'll keep going this time. Verse 29. When he drew near, sent two of his disciples, verse 30, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found, went and found it, and as they were untying the colts, sure enough, the owner said, why are you untying our colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it, and they brought it to Jesus. Now this is strange. Right? It's a strange command. Right? Jesus got some interesting you know, he's got, he flips culture on its head often. He's given us some strange commands before, like if you're going to be great, be a servant. But this kind of takes the cake. Go to Jerusalem and find this very specific donkey and bring it to me. I think it's easy, perhaps for us in 2022, to kind of read over some of that and maybe simply assume that donkeys were 
easy to borrow in this time period. But they were not. It was literally like taking somebody's car. To put it in modern terms, this would be like me, if I told intern Dan, right, go down to Cherrydale, there's going to be an SUV, right? I need you to get in there, I need you to hotwire it and bring it back to Griggs. And when they tell you, hey, why are you stealing our SUV? Say, Jesus said. Jesus told me to, right? It's for, it's for ministry. And they'll let you come, and you come back, and we use it for the Lord Jesus. That would never happen. Like, how do you think that would go in the, the parking lot down at Cherrydale? You'd be on the news, I'll tell you that. It would not go well. Here, they go into town. The, 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 the donkey is right where he said it would be. They begin to untie it. They say, hey, Jesus needs it. And the owners just say, well, okay. And just as Jesus predicted, it's brought to him outside of the city by the Mount of Olives on the east so that he could come and ride into town on it. Now, this is strange, but it is also amazing. It's amazing. Especially when you consider the least amazing part of this is Jesus knowing exactly where a donkey, a specific donkey would be in a city he's not in. That's the least amazing part. The most amazing part of this text is that in its entirety, it was predicted to a T 500 years before this. The direction of this moment was prophesied by Ezekiel. The specifics of this moment was prophesied by Zechariah. In Zechariah 9.9, Zechariah tells the people in a prophetic voice, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah, moved by the Holy Ghost of Palm Sunday past, 500 years ago, before Luke 19, that is, told his people and their descendants that their king was coming, and you know he was the righteous king, you know that he was the saving king, you know that he was the all-powerful king, but yet the kind king, because he will come to you into the city on a donkey, the donkey symbolized peace. Kings would ride a horse when it was serious. Kings would ride a horse when it was time for war. Kings would, would, would ride a horse when there was threats. But they would actually ride a donkey when the war was over, when the war was won during times of peace. Zechariah says, you need a king that's mounted on the donkey. You need a king that's only and always a king of peace. And here we see that we finally have him. Jesus is this ultimate king who has all power, but rather than coming to us to crush us, he comes us to give us peace. Jesus proved he's the king we all need by fulfilling these prophecies and hundreds of more like it. We need a king and we have a king. Hallelujah. Two, he claimed to be king by accepting praise. Look at verse 36. Verse 36, and he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near on his way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice 
and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. I want to read this too. Here's how John's gospel records this moment. John 12, 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So this is the royal treatment. They are, they are rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. They are literally welcoming him as they would welcome a conquering king. You can read this in Israelite history. Second Kings talks about a conquering king named Jehu, and they laid down palm branches and coats for him to ride on as well. It was their version of the red carpet. But it goes further than that, is that they're not just treating him like a king. They're talking to him like God. This is also what they would not just do for a king, but say to God. They sing to him this song of victory, Hosanna, which means save us now. They sing, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. These are actually two song lyrics from Psalm 118. This is something the ancient Israelites would sing to God as God delivered them from battle. So here we have a people, thousands, Genuinely, actually, emphatically worshiping him as the one true God. And what's unusual, if you've been reading the book of Luke as a whole, or one of the Gospels as a whole, the story of Jesus as a whole, is that at this point, he does not tell them any longer to hush. You see, as Jesus did ministry went all over the place. He did incredible things. He would heal those with leprosy. He would open blind eyes. He would raise the dead. In fact, he raised the dead in this very area around the Mount of Olives, his buddy Lazarus. And once in a while, people would put two and two together like, hmm, nobody else can do that. I saw that guy die and now he's alive. You're God. Ding, 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 right? Good work. You have won, double jeopardy, whatever, right? And Jesus, upon them realizing this, actually, from time to time, it could be confusing for the new believer reading this, would be like, hey, don't tell anybody. You're like, I thought we were supposed to tell everybody. Yeah, but remember, he's in physical time and space, right? You can only handle so big a crowd, right? If every sick person in the world's flying in to come see you, like, there's, there's just issues. I mean, he became a man, and he dwelt in time and space. And so a lot of times he would say, don't spread that word. Go to the priest, be officially cleansed. Don't tell anybody what I've done here for you today. He does this all throughout his early ministry, and then he gets to this scene. He has saved his identity for this scene, at least publicly, high-level publicly. He is waiting for this moment. At this moment, he comes in riding on the donkey, just like it was prophesied. He's fulfilling prophecy. Everybody is singing to him, Hosanna, Right, You are the God who saves. Everybody is worshiping him, not just as one of them, but as someone from on high, as a divine king. And he totally and completely accepts it. And in this moment, he tells the whole world exactly who he is forever by accepting this praise, that he is God. 
Some people mistakenly believe that Jesus never claimed to be God. So there are a lot of really bad ideas about Jesus out there. This is one of them. One bad idea about Jesus is that he's this good man. He might even be God's man, but he's not God himself. That we should follow him or be like him, but not take him too literally because he didn't like literally rise from death. He didn't, he's not literally God. And when you ask these people why they believe this way, they will tell you, well, there's no verse where Jesus comes out and just says, I am God. That's something his followers said about him hundreds of years later. And if you ever hear that, you can lovingly, carefully take your friend through this passage where the Pharisees definitely believe they heard Jesus say, I am God, by receiving the praise of people crying out, Hosanna to his name. I mean, look at verse 39. Look at verse 39. It says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So quick reminder, the Pharisees are the enemies of Jesus. The Pharisees were always accusing Jesus of blaspheming God, which is kind of ironic since he is God and had no sin. So calling God a sinner is actually blasphemy. So they're blaspheming by calling him a blasphemer. It's just kind of a hoot, okay? Religion makes us do some stupid things. So here... They're essentially accusing him of blasphemy because he's not stopping the people from singing Hosanna to him. See, when the people put their coats down and their palm branches down and cried Hosanna to him, they are claiming him as God. And in a weird way, the Pharisees are sort of right. If Jesus wasn't God, he should correct this. If Jesus wasn't God, but he was indeed good, he would correct this for the sake of the crowd. Right? We get this, don't we? Like, if I'm at dinner with my sister, and the waitress comes up, and she's like, what would the lovely couple want to eat this evening? I'm going to be like, that's my sister. Right? The last thing I need is another awkward moment to add to my collection. And I don't want the waitress to be embarrassed. I don't want, I mean, I'm just going to, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to be helpful. Actually, not a date. Sister. Sister. Right? I'm going to correct that. Jesus, if he's a good man, and everybody's thinking he can do things he can't, everybody's thinking, you know, he's God when he's not. If he was good, he would indeed be like, hey, 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 thank you so much. But really, all glory goes to someone else, the Father. He would stop them. If Jesus isn't God, he should stop them. But does he stop them? No. In fact, look what he says. Look at verse 40 of this text. He answers the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like, yeah, you need to stop your disciples. They're calling you God. Verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Mic drop. That's what we call that in the industry. This is savage. This is the ultimate clapback. I'm telling you. Shots have been fired at the Pharisees. Instead of rebuking the crowd, He turns around and he rebukes them in such a way that only Jesus can do. I mean, you'd have to be God to come up with a comeback this good. I mean, you and I, our comeback would be nowhere near as good. It would take us like three hours to think of. I should have said this. Jesus, he's right on time. More than just an incredible comeback, Jesus here emphatically declares that his worshipers are correct. They are right. That he isn't just a good man, he is the God King. And here he fully, totally, completely 
claims that title. He is totally God to the point where if the people quit praising him, the rest of his creation would, even the rocks. Jesus here claims to be God on Palm Sunday. It all was waiting for this moment where he would publicly, in front of everyone, proclaim his true identity. Now, I will admit to those who reject Jesus and say that he never said he was God, is that he is doing it to some degree indirectly. But it's still a direct claim. Everyone still gets what it means, knows what it means. That's why they crucify him in about a week. I mean, it's indirect, but it's direct. I mean, it's indirect. Like, okay, I'll tell you this. Joanna and I, on, I think it was, well, it was on April 5th. I know that. I think that was Tuesday, but I can't remember. Anyway, um, we just celebrated our ninth wedding anniversary, okay? April 5th. We've been married nine years, right? So that is quite a feat. I think I'm one of those pastors that's ready to write a marriage book, right? And I already have an awesome title. It's called Till Death Do Us Party, okay? Don't steal it. Incredible name. Anyway, in fact, I'm going to do a hashtag with that. It's going to be awesome. So I'm going to be Write a book on marriage because we've been married nine years. And for nine years, I've been claiming to be Joanna's husband. But I don't always just like go up to someone. Like, hey, how you doing? I'm Joanna's husband. What's your name? Like, that'd be weird. Right? I mean, sometimes I say, yeah, you know, I look at Joanna and say, yeah, I cried at our wedding because I did. She did not. I did. I cried the whole time. Um, I might say something like, well, she changed her last name from Stark to, to Miller. Uh, I might say, I don't know. I liked it, so I put a ring on it, right? <laughs> I'm indirectly saying, we're married. I'm Joanna's husband. It's indirect, but it is definitely direct. The point is the same. The, the message, you get it, right? This is Jesus doing that, claiming to be God. Muhammad never claimed to be God. Joseph Smith never claimed to be God. Kirshna never claimed to be God. Confucius never claimed to be God. Buddha never claimed to be God. One guy claimed to be God. His name is Jesus. And he says to the Pharisees, if you reject me, I'm still God. If these people reject me, I'm still God. The stones will cry out. This indicates that he will get the glory whether we give it to him or not. So he accepts their welcome, not just as a king, but as the king. Here, Jesus reveals his true identity. He is the father of fathers. He is the pastor of pastors. And he is the mayor of mayors and the governor of governors and the ruler of rulers and the god of gods and the emperor of emperors. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. We need a king. And we have a king. And his name is Jesus. Happy Palm Sunday. So he proves he's king by fulfilling prophecy. And he claims to be king by accepting praise. And finally, we see he acts like a king by weeping over his city. Look at the last few verses in 41 through uh, 44. 41. And when he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it. Very interesting saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation." 
So Jesus gets to the very end of the Palm Sunday road. There's no more coats left. There's no more palm trees left. He's outside the city. He gets down off the donkey and onto his knees in front of thousands of people, perhaps 10,000s of people who have lined the streets in this endless trail. And he begins to weep. In the Greek, it's more like wail. I mean, this is an overwhelming, dramatic display of sorrow. This is the kind of weeping that you do next to a deathbed. This is the kind of weeping you do after you find out a spouse has been cheating on you. This is the kind of weeping you do when one of your children walks away from the faith. That's what Jesus is doing outside the city in front of all these people. I mean, this is intense. And why is he weeping over Jerusalem? Because so many of them who just proclaimed him as king and God do not actually want him to be their king. They are going to walk away from the faith. They are going to see someone else and seek some other God. They are on their deathbed. In fact, that's why he prophesied the coming fall of Jerusalem that happened about 35, 40 years after this. In verse 43, 44, you see where he said, their day is coming. Your enemies will set up a barricade around you, tear you down to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you didn't know the time of your visitation. In other words, because you didn't know me, my peace, the real peace that I was offering, but rather wanted this political peace, you didn't want the peace I actually came to give you on my visit, but have sought political peace. Instead, you're not going to find either anytime soon. Because without me, you can do nothing. Rome is coming to conquer you, and Rome did conquer them, just as Jesus predicted. And Jesus, who wants their peace more than they want their own peace, weeps for them and over them. He weeps. Jesus weeps because so many of the people who just claimed him as their king are only partially committed to him, and thus they are about to fully reject him. It wasn't just the Pharisees who would kill him. Some of these same people who lined these streets shouting, Hosanna in the highest, will soon be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The message of Palm Sunday is we need a king. We have a king. But the application of Palm Sunday is will you receive your king? Here's a convicting question for us this morning. Would you have been in this crowd? It's a convicting question. Would you have turned on him? Have you ever wondered, would I turn on King Jesus? Would I? Like, like if I was under a certain temptation, a certain situation, would I stick it out with him or would I turn on him? How do we know? Well, I think it all depends on why you're following him in the first place. Here's what happened to the folks in this crowd. They were partially committed to Jesus. And what I mean by that is they didn't love Jesus. They love their idea of Jesus. And those two things are often not the same. Never probably the same. Their idea of Jesus was that he was about to become physical king, not spiritual king. 
They were pro-Jesus so long as he was about to take over for Herod, but they were not so into it when they found out he's here to take over hearts. They were pro-Jesus when they thought he was going to rule from a palace. They were a lot less into it when they realized, no, he's coming to rule within people. This is why they would soon go from laying down their garments before him to ripping his garments off of him. You say, but he fulfilled the prophecies, but he claimed to be God and he accepted their worship. Yeah, but he didn't give them what they thought they wanted. A physical kingdom here and now. Now, clearly, (laughs) they didn't realize having the kingdom of Jesus is far better than having the kingdom of Jerusalem. I mean, the kingdom of Jesus is a much better kingdom. I mean, if Jesus had taken over for Herod, here's the problem. You would have disobeyed King Jesus. You think it's a big deal to disobey King Herod. Wait till you disobey King Jesus. And that's exactly what we have done and what we would do if he was here physically without the whole salvation thing that he provided for us in his actual kingdom. How do I know? Because there was a time where we, represented by Adam and Eve, did that exact thing. In the garden, there was a king. His name was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He sat on a throne. His people walked with him, and then they defied him. In that kingdom, you're cursed because you've disobeyed the holy king, not just Herod the king. But in the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom he actually came to bring us, you are not cursed, but blessed, not rejected, but accepted because he, as the second Adam, obeyed in your place. Trust me, trust me, trust me. It is so much better that Jesus reigns from heaven's throne than Herod's throne. Another reason that that something they must not have realized, right, is that the kingdom of Jesus is better than the kingdom of Jerusalem because our chiefest problem is not actually political or geographical or even legal. Our chiefest problems are actually personal. Or I'll say it this way, our greatest problems are not external, they're internal. This is why Jesus didn't come to make us powerful and wealthy and healthy and famous. He came to make us holy from the inside out. So we need a king and we have a king, but let's not make any mistake about what our king has come to save us from. He did not come to save us yet from bad kings or other nations. He did not come to save us from discomfort or poverty. He did not come to save us from disease. Those days are coming, but primarily, ultimately, in this covenant, the new covenant, our king, the king of the world, came to us to save us from ourselves. Look back, verse 41, 42, when he drew near the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they're hidden from your eyes. Here's Jesus acting like the king. He's weeping for his city because they refused peace. It was hidden from their eyes. They were blind to the peace he was actually bringing and the peace they actually needed. What peace was that? An internal peace. They did not get this, but it's amazing who gets it. Some people get this. Most of you, many of you get this. You understand this. And I thank God for that, and I'm encouraged by you. You know who gets this? Is the people who realize, the people who realize that we're our own worst enemy, that we are set on self-destruct mode from birth. We look for ways to sabotage ourselves. We do. We self-sabotage. 
Sometimes I look around my house and I think, why is this house a mess? Why is it my house look like, like the house is on HGTV? Instead of a fixer-upper, i got a fixer-downer. What's the problem? Why is, why, why is my house a mess? I think, oh, it's, it's the wife and kids. Well, then they're out of town for three days, and it's still a mess. I'm like, oh, the reason my house is a mess is because I live here. That's the problem with my house. This is true for us in our humanity. We are the enemy Jesus came to rescue us from. It's amazing who gets this. Earlier in Luke's gospel, there's this story uh, of Jesus, and he's eating with some of these type of people, the people like the Pharisees. He's eating with them. And into the house comes someone who wasn't invited. It's this lady, and she comes in, and she gets on the floor, and she crawls near to Jesus, probably trying not to be seen by the Pharisees, and she just wants to get close to Jesus. She's heard he's in this house, and she begins to weep uncontrollably. And with her tears, she takes her hair and begins to wash the feet of Jesus with her tears. And the Pharisees Jesus, if you were good, if you were God, you would never let this woman touch you. She's a sinner. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and he thanks the woman and he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He shows love. He shows grace. He shows peace to the sinner. He said, hey, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's the mantra of our king. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Peace from what? Peace from your sin. It is forgiven. Amen? Peace from your separation. You have been declared justified, not guilty, in the court of the king. Hallelujah? You have been declared righteous. It's as if you were the very one who went out and healed the lepers and fed the 5,000 and walked on water. And, and, and you're like, I didn't do any of those things. That's why it's called grace. It's given to you by the king. He saves her. He saves us from ourself, from our sin. Here's another convicting question for us. What are you looking for Jesus to save you from? Are you looking for him primarily to save you from unpopularity? From singleness? From your political opponents? I don't know that he's really offering that. What are you looking for Jesus to save you from? They wanted a different king with a different agenda, with a different mantra. But what about you? Why are you following Jesus? Do you follow him because of what you've imagined he may do for you? Do you follow him so that he can fix your external world? If so, you will probably be angry with him by the end of the week, just like they were. Because here's what he is actually offering. Salvation from your own sin. Many folks in the crowd on this Sunday, they did not want to be saved from that. So they were only partially committed to Jesus. Yet he is the good king. And through his weeping, he shows us he's 100% committed to them. You may not be 100% committed to Jesus. Jesus is 100% committed to you. You may be struggling this morning with your commitment to the real Jesus 
Not your idea of Jesus, but the one we have, the one that's been revealed through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that Jesus, here's the great thing about him. He's not struggling with his commitment to you. He is the God king, and yet he is the good king who uses all that power, all that sovereignty, all that control for us. In fact, I'll end with this thought. You may have noticed in verses 42, 44, that there are a couple references to time. Verse 42, he says he's weeping because they didn't accept his peace on this day. In verse 44, they're headed for misery because they didn't know the time of his visitation. It seems really specific. You say, what's up with that? Well, it could be, and it seems to be, that him coming into town on this day, Palm Sunday, is him fulfilling another one of those Old Testament prophecies that these pious Jews should have been keenly aware of. As far as I understand it, it appears that in the book of Daniel, chapter number 9, this scene is predicted down to the very day. Daniel 9.24 talks about a coming prince who will make atonement for sin 69 weeks after the commandment to rebuild the temple. And by 69 weeks, scholars tell us that what's meant in prophetic language is 69 sets of seven years. Biblical and historical scholars can tell you the day they commanded the people to rebuild the temple because that date is actually plain as day for us in the book of Nehemiah. Biblical historical scholars also believe that they know the day Jesus came into Jerusalem on this day, this triumphal entry, because the dates of the Passover around that time are incredibly well documented. It appears that this would have been, on this day, the 10th of the Jewish month called Nisan, which would have been to the day exactly 69 weeks after the rebuilding of Jerusalem. I'd say that's 100% commitment on Jesus' part, the exact day. But not theirs. Though he claimed to be their king and they claimed to be a people of the word, they actually didn't see him coming. And some believe that this is why Jesus is weeping over them for not knowing the time of the visitation on this day. Because he came on the exact day that he said he would hundreds of years before in the prophet Daniel. Now only God could fulfill such a prophecy. Jesus is truly the God king. And they don't see him for who he really is. So he weeps. Yet, not only is he the God king, he's a good king. Because here's the other thing you have to know about the 10th of Nisan. If all of that is correct, and this really is the 10th of Nisan, this would have been the day that all the families coming into Jerusalem would have gone about procuring their Passover lamb. In fact, that's why they were exchanging money in the temple, which was apparently a big no-no for Jesus, is to buy at a high rate Passover lambs. This is why everybody's in town. Everyone's in the market. The hustle and bustle. People are setting apart their sacrifice, setting apart the Passover lamb. And so Jesus comes in as the God King, weeping over their spiritual blindness, that they can't see his power to come into Jerusalem on the exact day he said he would, but he's also the good king who will lay down his life anyway for them as their Passover lamb. This is why the Holy Ghost of Palm Sunday future, if you will, tells us in Revelation 7, 9, 10 about the ultimate Palm Sunday that is to come. Where he says, after these things I looked, behold, a great multitude 
which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. He is the King who is the Lamb. We need a king, and we have a king. And though many did not understand him in that day, in the future, we will all understand, and we will all surround his throne. And there will be a day where every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, and we will spend eternity worshiping, laying down our palm branches before the conquering king, the good king, the God king, Jesus Christ. Just like he goes down that Palm Sunday road, He comes into our life on the exact day he planned to. He has come to save you from your sin. He has come to save you from yourself. He has come that you might have an internal peace. He comes to usher in a heavenly kingdom. The question simply is, will you receive your king? If you're here and you're a non-Christian, today is a great day to shout Hosanna for the first time. Save me now. Save me from myself. Jesus loves to do so. If you're here and you're a Christian, today's a great day to rededicate your life to laying out the red carpet for King Jesus. They laid down their coats. They laid down their palm branches. What is it in your life that you need to lay down in order to give Jesus the royal treatment? We can and we will start today by singing just like they sang to him, by praising him just like they praised him, by shouting for his glory, just like they shouted. So we are going to have a time of worship now to the king. We have a king. We have a king. Let's sing to him. I'll pray and the musicians will come up. Jesus, thank you for this wonderful Palm Sunday. We needed a king and you are that king who has 